Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today, we're taking you through the best bits of The Precipice by Toby Ord, Existential Risk and the Future of Humanity. If all goes well, human history, we're just at the beginning. You know, humanity, we've been around for about 200,000 years or so, but the Earth is going to remain habitable for hundreds of millions more, which is enough time for millions of future generations. That's enough for people to end disease, solve the problems of poverty, end injustice forever, enough to create heights of flourishing that are probably even unimaginable for us today. 100%, man. It's absolutely insane the amount of innovation that we've had, say, the last 10 years or 50 years. According to the universe, that's just a, that's nothing. 10 years is nothing. Million years is nothing. So, there's really no <laughs> limit to how far we can take this innovation. We're gonna, we could have a world that's totally unimaginable to us today. And that's just on planet Earth. If we could learn to reach out further into the cosmos, that could be trillions of years to explore billions of different worlds. So, such a lifespan could present us, you know, really we're just putting humanity at its absolute infancy today. Now, there's a big but here, (laughs) big but. We're currently standing on the precipice. So, humanity's future right now is a defining challenge of our time. We're standing on the precipice and we stand at a very, very crucial moment for the history of our species and where we're going in the future. Yeah, whilst it is possible that we could live for trillions of years and explore billions of different worlds and planets, it's also very possible that it could all be over very, very soon, that the whole, that humanity does something that can really wipe itself out. So, we have the capacity to destroy ourselves and we could cut ties with our future and all the possibilities and all the things we could become if we don't handle this moment properly. You wouldn't give a baby uh, your, your shotgun in the bottom drawer because that's just too much power giving to a little human that's got no wisdom whatsoever. Similar thing is happening to us as a species. We're becoming more and more powerful, but our wisdom isn't necessarily growing at the the fast rate. So, as the gap between what our power is and our wisdom, um, our future is subject to an ever-increasing risk. And this level of risk, this situation uh, where our power is growing, but our wisdom isn't growing as fast and the gap is only getting bigger, it's, it's unsustainable. Over the next few centuries or even the next few decades, humanity is going to be tested. Either we're going to act decisively to protect ourselves and and provide for our long-term potential or, in all likelihood, it could be over. And there has been a period where we've been living in a precarious time and the history we find ourselves in right now didn't necessarily have to be the only one. We could have been living in a different world entirely if a few things happened just slightly differently just only a few decades ago. Yeah, one of the most harrowing uh, and present examples is 27th of October, 1962. There was a single officer on a Soviet submarine that could have really started an all-out nuclear war. So, Valentin Savitsky, he was the captain of the B-59. And this was one of the four that the Soviet Union had sent over near the US to support the military operations in Cuba. Each one of them had a secret weapon. They had a nuclear torpedo with explosive power, and this was comparable to the Hiroshima bomb, and this was at the height of the Cuban Missile Crisis. So, on that fateful day, one of the US warships had detected this submarine and had kind of attempted to force it down by dropping a couple of little explosive death, death charges trying to wipe this guy out, and the sub had been hiding deep for days. It was out of radio contact. The crew, they didn't actually know where the war had broken out or not. They didn't know, look, should we? what should we do here? Like, we're getting bombed. We don't know what's going on. It's Yeah, they were at a very important de- decision point here. Absolutely. So, Zavitsky, he's the top dog on this submarine. He said, all right, 
you know, we don't know what's going to happen here. Let's get our secret weapon prepared, boys. <laughs> We've come all this way. We've got our weapon. Maybe the war started up there. Maybe it's not. Um, if it has, we need to help our comrades and maybe blast them now. Look, we might die in the process of sending this nuke, but at least we're going to sink their mole and we're not going to disgrace our country. So the, whilst the captain was getting ready, big old Savitsky, there was someone on board who was like the political sort of arm, the political officer. He also had to give the consent, like the, the famous, you know, both, there's two keys, you both got to turn your key. Captain saying, let's turn our bloody keys. And the other blokes, he's at the point where he's like, okay, should I turn this key or not? Should I launch a secret weapon? Should we launch another Hiroshima-sized bomb to wipe, try to wipe out some of the US? Or should I, you know, remain calm and keep my key in the off position? And this was a bloke called Vasily Arkhipov, and it turns out he could have been the most important person in history. Uh, if you've listened to our episode on noise, we found that there's a lot of variance in our decision-making from day to day, depending on how we sleep, how we wake up, what we've eaten and all that. Luckily on this day, for where we are today, Vasily uh, decided to say no at this stage. He talked Savitsky down from his rage and convinced him to give up and said, look, we're not going to be sending any nuclear bombs today. We're going to wait for extra orders from Moscow. So it's very clear that that one position sent us in a completely different direction. If they had have launched that, that their secret nuclear bomb and it would have been all-out war, US versus Russia, whipping out all of their nuclear bombs, uh, or it went the other way and he said, let's just remain calm. They didn't launch that first nuke and, and thankfully for us, we're still around today to tell the tale. It's pretty difficult now retrospectively looking back and figuring out what were the actual chances at the time of an all-out nuclear war between USA and Russia. But those who were really close to Kennedy at the time, the president, they say it's about one in three to one in two chance <laughs> at that moment of it happening, like right on the edge of an all-out nuclear war and we'd have a fucking different world than today. <laughs> um, another bloke here, Paul Nitsky, he was another advisor. He said it was about 10%. And he didn't even know about this situation, the submarine B-59. And Toby Orr, the author of this book, he says it's about 10% to 50% chance. Now, whatever odds it actually is, whether it's 30%, 50%, mate, it's a high percentage chance of being in the precipice on that very moment. Yeah, 50% is obviously crazy. Even 10% is is like way too high to even imagine that there was like a 10% chance that on this day, the world could have been wiped out. Uh, that's yeah that's just that's just wild so there's all these this is just one type of risk that he calls these existential risks that they could really end humanity as we know it and aside from this there's actually heaps of existential risks and they all require our urgent attention absolutely and in the context of the distribution of the global resources a lot of the time this existential risk it's not going to be very high on the priorities Toby Ord was a bit of ahead of his time, and we're going to get into all the specific ones a bit later in this podcast, but he says that the highest risk facing humanity is engineered pandemics. Now, very bizarre. He wrote this before, uh, obviously, COVID, probably just on the precipice of COVID using his terminology. <laughs> but at the time, the whole world spent $1.3 million uh, looking to prevent this risk, and that's about yeah, your local Macca's store. That's about what they spend. Yeah, that's pretty crazy that they're only spending the amount of one McDonald's restaurant on trying to protect the world against the existential risk of the prohibition of bioweapons. Uh, there's another one, which is the advancement of AI, you know, unaligned AI. It's obviously could be, there could be a lot of great things that come for it. 
and there's billions of dollars being spent every single year on improving AI and improving our AI capabilities. But on the other hand, there's only like tens of millions of dollars, which in comparison to billions of dollars, there's only tens of millions being spent on actually reducing the risks of artificial AI. Yeah, it's the classic tragedy of the commons issue where uh, let's say if you're the United Kingdom and you say, hey, we don't want um, unaligned artificial intelligence. But if we try and put all our investments in stopping this, Look, we're only 1% of the world's population today. If we act alone on this existential risk, we're going to have to bear the full cost with only 1% of the world's population. So uh, what about the US over there? They've got 20 times the population of us, China a lot more than that. It's really on them to do all this work. Everyone's pointing the finger. No one's really stopping these existential risks. So each nation, we're tempted to free ride on the efforts of others. And some of the work on these risks that's going to benefit everyone are simply just not going to get done. One whole group of existential risks, risks that could possibly wipe out the human species, is, uh, is natural risks. And there's a whole bunch of natural risks that we know about that could potentially come and wipe us out. One time there was an asteroid 10 kilometers across, it was speeding towards Earth. The chance of this asteroid hitting Earth is tiny, but in the cosmos, uh, there's a lot of time to go around. So it kept going around for millions and millions of years, swinging through the solar system missing the earth just on every single pass. But then one day, uh, things changed. <laughs> one day, this big hunk of rock floating around in space slammed into Earth's surface just off the coast of Mexico. It made collision at about 60,000 kilometers per hour and a trillion tons of rock was moving so fast that it released uh, the equivalent of 10 billion Hiroshima bombs. That's a pretty big, that's, pretty, pretty big blast, ten, isn't it? 10 billion blasts. It smashed a hole 30 kilometers deep into the Earth's crust and that's 60 times the height of the Empire State Building, three times smaller than Everest. In the aftermath, there was a billowing cloud of dust and ash that rose all the way up through the atmosphere, and it blocked the sunlight hitting the Earth. And this is a catastrophe that caused mass extinction. Yeah, basically that, that one thing, you know, the, the asteroid hitting and then changing the Earth's atmosphere really wiped out all the dinosaurs. Three quarters of all species on Earth were completely annihilated. So now this is one natural risk that could hit us today, a big asteroid hitting the earth like it did for the dinosaurs and taking us all out. They started tracking asteroids because it's, it's a serious thing. You can wipe out, yeah. wipe out 75% of the species on earth. We'd probably be a, or we're a 75% chance that we'd be in that 75%. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so they thought, okay, we better start tracking these. So since 1981, people have been tracking asteroids. Yeah, it's probably... Uh, Decade later, we came up with a few of the Hollywood movies. It probably just makes you think it's a very likely event that's going to happen <laughs> in your life. But they were actually able to quantify really the risks of it hitting the Earth because the probability of an asteroid between 1 and 10 kilometers in size is about 1 in 6,000 hitting us this century and about 1 in 1. 1.5 million for asteroids above 10 kilometers smacking us up. Mm. Even a, a, a 1 to 10 kilometer sized asteroid, you know, 1 in 6,000 chance of happening this century. Um, it's, it's pretty crazy that they've specified those exact odds, but it's still odds that, I don't know, I don't know if, you, if you're flipping a coin or if you're betting on those odds. Yeah, it's, a, it's still a risk. It's there. It's there. It's there. So at the time of writing, 95% of asteroids bigger than one kilometer have been found. Unfortunately, there's about 5% that's lurking out there that we, are, <laughs> that we don't know about yet. We don't know about yet. Um, <laughs> could smack us up at any time. 
Yeah, thankfully, of those 95 that they have tracked, they said, oh, no, we're, we're all good. They're not going to hit Earth anytime soon, so that's good. Uh, but they said the probability of one hitting Earth in the next 100 years is about one in 120,000. That's better odds. You take that. I'll take those odds, Ash, Yeah. So, another natural risk is super volcanic eruptions. So, this is a risk that can be from within the Earth rather than from without. So, the very largest volcanic eruptions, they explode 1,000 cubic kilometers of rock. So, this is what we're known as super volcanic eruptions. Yeah, these super volcanoes, they're not like the volcanoes you see in cartoons with a big mountain uh, with a hole in it type of thing above the Earth's crust. These ones are so big that it doesn't maintain that shape. It basically just this magma spews out of it. Uh, and the biggest one that, that happened uh, 630,000 years ago was in the Yellowstone caldera uh, in the US. And so, basically, a whole bunch of magma spewed out and made this big crater in the ground. But a little bit like asteroids and comets, the threat isn't from the explosion itself. More comes from the aftermath where you've got a darkened sky and the entire atmosphere is compromised. You can only just imagine like how hard it would be just to grow your local bread and your fruit and your local <laughs> agricultural products when it's just a completely darkened sky. There was another one in Indonesia called Toba that happened 74,000 years ago. Everything within 100 kilometers was buried under falling rock. Uh, they had the the whole basically the whole country of India was covered in a blanket of ash. They have found traces as far away as Africa. If you know the world map from Indonesia to Africa, that's a fair way. Uh, and it's just that's a it's a risk that it's it's there. The risk is always there. So the likelihood of a toga event is one in eight hundred for the century. So it's toga, it's probably that's pretty high. <laughs> it's pretty high. It's gonna. Well, I don't think that one's gonna knock us out. It's not. It's not no. gonna knock us out of the game, but it could. Could very well just knock a good majority of us out. Yeah, that's what they said. They said that the Toba one in Indonesia didn't actually wipe out humans. So, whilst there is a 1 in 800 chance of an explosion of this size happening, it probably won't knock us out. So, that's good to know. Well, we'll get rid of the agriculture. I think, uh, I don't know how we'd go as going, going back a few uh, thousand years to old uh, hunter-gatherer. I know about us two running out there and trying to hunt for food. <laughs> yeah. It'd be pretty cooked. When everything's the... covered in ash. <laughs> <laughs> it be pretty cooked without the local 7-Eleven, but that's, uh, that's the local supermarket will be out out of the picture <laughs> another natural risk is stellar explosions so within every star there's this constant battle between two forces there's a force of gravity which is squishing the star together whilst there's the force of the pressure from the explosion inside it which is pushing it apart most of the star's life that it's in balance and it's preventing it from collapse into a black hole but also dissipating it into space but at some point the pressure fails to withstand the force of gravity and they reach this high intensity, triggering a new wave of pressure, and then the star explodes, known as a supernova. Yeah, for a brief time, that one explosion of that one star can outshine its entire galaxy, and in just a matter of a couple of seconds, it releases as much energy as our sun would radiate over 10 billion years. So, 10 billion years worth of sun in just a couple of seconds. Yeah, I think it would be wiped out. If you're, sun, <laughs> if you're sun baking on the beach, you'd probably just turn into it, trying to get a tan. I think you'd probably end the day a little bit more tan yeah. than you anticipated. <laughs> a little bit over, overcooked, I reckon. So, the risk of this, this century is one in five million. So, I mean, after reading this book, probably a little bit reassured by the, the natural risks. I think we can run the gauntlet here. I think uh, you could do the Danny Kahneman approach here. You could do the bottom-up quantification of the risk or you could get an outside view and just say, all right, what are the stats? Um, look in the archaeological records. 540 million years, how many ex mass extinction events we've had? Uh, we've had five. So from that, you can quantify the risk and the odds. Yeah, so whilst these all sound pretty scary and you wouldn't want to live through any of them, they said that it's happened 
you know, five times over the last 500-odd million years where there's been an extinction, a natural extinction event that's wiped out 75% of all species. So if you do the math, that's about one every 100 million years or there's probably a one in a million chance of something like that happening this century. So you probably take those odds, one in a million. It means that if we are going to get wiped out, it's pretty unlikely that it'll be from a natural risk. Yeah, it's more likely to come from our old mate, the, the leader of the Russian submarine, um, having a bad day. And I think that's the sort of stuff we need to worry about a bit more. So while there are a whole bunch of natural risks, the odds are pretty low. It's much more likely that the risks, the thing that's going to potentially wipe out the human species, is probably going to be something that we've created ourselves or something a bit more anthropogenic risks. One type of risk is sort of playing Russian roulette um, with our science and innovations. Think about Russian roulette, you got like... Um, yeah, you know, say you got six chambers, put a bullet in one, spin it around. You might uh, press the button and nothing happens, and you go, oh, "That was a pretty was unrisky. Right. <laughs> that, was, that was fine. What are you? Uh, it's not that risky." But obviously, that's one history that um, went down. You could have obviously blown your head off, and you said, "Hey, that's actually well, you wouldn't be there to say it." But yeah. it, was, it turns out to be a pretty risky game. Yeah, very much. So one one of these uh, situations was back in the nineteen forties. Uh, American physicist Robert Oppenheimer, he held a, a series of secret meetings in his office. He brought together some of the, the, the leading thinkers and the leading researchers and was, said, hey, what do you guys reckon? Should we try to create an atomic bomb? Uh, what do you reckon? What are the pros? What are the cons? Uh, and there was, yeah, there was a, a pretty heated debate between, a, between the different scientists. Some thought it was a, was a necessary risk. Some thought it was way too risky to even bother to try so everyone around the room just said a unanimous yes. That sounds like a pretty fun project. <laughs> In a, well, that's where they landed anyway. And whilst they were like trying to design this bomb, there was a bloke, Edward Teller. He noticed that if it were possible to ignite a certain type of reaction, it might be possible to ignite a fusion reaction that would just um, ignite the atoms next to it and then it would end up igniting the whole entire world around it and uh, even ignite the hydrogen within water. So this chemical reaction could have just blown the whole earth up. And in this, it would destroy all humanity and all complex life. Thankfully, in those first initial tests that they did, obviously the atmosphere did not ignite. And thankfully, in all the testing that we've done since then, it hasn't ignited yet. Yet, there's definitely been that kind of risk that uh, people are doing so much wild and innovative science and experiments and trying new things that... Yes, on one hand, it's, it is pretty innovative. It's cool to know that we can do some of this stuff. But on the other hand, there's always the risk, the existential risk that, hey, they haven't thought about what happens if A leads to B leads to C and all of a sudden the whole world blows up. Yeah, absolutely. Well, if say if you got 10 people, scientists around the room, three of them saying, come on, guys, this is going to ignite a big <laughs> reaction. Um, and the rest of them say, nah, you, you guys are just overblowing it. And they do it anyway. I mean, that's mm. one serious Russian roulette risk where you just pull the chamber, nothing happens and... Um, there could be a whole bunch of those moments that actually occur as we keep on innovating and we don't really know exactly when it's going to be the bullet. So the biggest explosion that they created at that time or obviously the, the what was it called? The Fat Boy and Little Man or I forget what they were called. I think it was Fat Boy, wasn't it? Yeah. We got I don't a, know actually. We got, we got Fat Boy. Sometimes I just say yes. Yeah. No one be gone. <laughs> or maybe it was Fat Man and Little Boy or Fat Boy and Little Man. Anyway, they obviously dropped those in World War II with devastating effects. Then they thought 10 years later, they thought, okay, let's see what else can we do. Let's push it a bit further. There was uh, an explosion that the US did in uh, the Bikini Islands. 
um, which was just their testing site. They didn't, they didn't want to test it, obviously, in the middle of America, so they just went to some islands and tested it out. It turns out they're expecting six megatons of an explosion. Someone got the calculations wrong along the way. They actually got 15 megatons of explosions, which was a 1,000 times the energy of the Hiroshima bomb. So even after they'd done all these calcs and thought, okay, this is what we're in for, they're actually way off. They were off by a factor of two and a half. And obviously, if, you know, if you're off by that much, if one little calculation goes wrong, it doesn't take long for you to get to the point where you're blowing up the earth. Oh, well, yeah, that's right. That, you know, who knows how, what level of error they would have had in their calculations. And that's the whole point. Like when you're innovating, scientists don't know exactly know what's going to happen when they're at the point of experimental and theoretical physics where they kind of overlap. So they're sort of those, they're those Russian roulette risks where we're taking innovative risks in science and research and experimentation that we don't really know when the, when that bullet is going to fly out of the chamber of the Russian roulette game. Another one, of course, which is in everybody's minds, one of the first risks that comes to mind is climate change. And this is where we all know that the Earth's atmosphere, it's really essential for life. It provides the pressure we need for liquid water to exist it, and it has this stability to avoid these massive temperature swings that all the plants and animals that have evolved to sort of meet the specific uh, temperature that we have today. And of course, through the greenhouse effect, we have this insulation that keeps our planet from becoming entirely frozen. So there's a lot, a lot of good things that are in our favor to just that put us in this so-called uh, Goldilocks zone for, for uh, animals to thrive. But then we started tweaking around a bit. Through the Industrial Revolution, we unlocked a whole bunch of energy that had laid dormant inside these fossil fuels for millions of years and unlocked their carbon as well. And these carbon dioxide emissions from the fossil fuel burning, they were small at first, but as we started getting further and further and more developed and more advanced, it became bigger and bigger and bigger. So as we've been unlocking these fossil fuels, we've been putting a bit of the CO2 out there and the old greenhouse effect which provides this insulation might be a bit a little bit more insulation than we like so the earth's climate we have warmed by about one degree in total so far sea levels have risen about 23 centimeters so uh one degree and 23 centimeters not obviously we're still thriving today to a lot so it hasn't killed us yet and the ocean has become a little bit more acidic by uh, 0.1 uh, ph so i'll take his word for it sounds like a uh, Sounds like a bit. Yeah, yeah, it does. It's a little bit. But then the IPCC, they've stated that the climate sensitivity where things uh, will start to change is anywhere between 1.5 degrees and 4.5 degrees. So if we're kind of already at one degree and things are going to start to really change when we get to 1.5 degrees, we're kind of not far off that point. And of course, there's a lot of uncertainty in this. Um, there's a two to three chance only that we're going to be the 1.5 to 4.5 degree range could end up about 1.5 degrees if that works out then we'll be pretty happy about that one also could end up being nine degrees so if it ends at the higher end of all the spectrums of possibilities uh we could be in a bit of trouble the major uh suggested effects of climate change include reduced agricultural yields water scarcity increased tropical diseases ocean acidification and the collapse of the gulf stream so that Seems like some pretty serious problems pretty serious that, stuff, that, eh? that we could be looking at in the future. From an existential risk, the biggest concern is going to be the large loss of uh, biodiversity and the subsequent collapse of the ecosystem. So a large enough collapse might not threaten human extinction. I mean, you could make the case that nine degrees Celsius increase could be pretty good at just sitting on the top of Antarctica and you end up with this little tribe just hanging out there, but you've lost 99% of the population. So 
pretty wild shit has to happen to wipe out the full nine billion. But if you think about the possibilities, like we mentioned at the start, where human beings flourish and do some pretty wild stuff, maybe the upside of our potential will be wiped out. Another whole stream of risks is the risk of pandemics. If we go back to 1347, came to Europe. The Mongol army that made their way across the continent had sort of landed, they brought some diseases with them, and within six years, the Black Death had taken over the whole continent of Europe. And within those six years, between a quarter to a half of all Europeans were killed by the disease. It's a hell of a lot of people. It's a lot, man. Think about what we've got in the moment, 1%. Imagine 50%. Yeah. Jesus Christ. Gets worse than that. Like we've we've covered Jared Diamond's uh, guns, germs, and steel. Where like some populations, if they're not ready for the germ, ninety percent of the America's population were taken out by a single germ. And today, where there's all sorts of new farming practices, and there's all sorts of new opportunities for uh, diseases and pandemics to spread around to reach all corners of the globe. Yeah, with higher density populations in cities, with new farming practices where you've got animals living in unhealthy conditions in close proximity to humans, plus when you've got people traveling from different areas all around the world, there's going to be a lot more risk that these diseases can spread. Things like HIV, which is spread from chimps to humans, Ebola, which spread from bats, SARS, which spread from bats, uh, influenza, which usually comes from pigs or birds. Of course, you know, some more recent ones that might come from a bat or a pangolin or something like that. Mm. It's quite easy for these to, to spread all over the world. And when this book came out two years ago... A bat or a, or a lab? Yeah. <laughs> that's, maybe that... Well, that's probably another entire existential risk coming our way as well. Well, that's a good bridge there, Asho, because the natural pandemics, I mean, 90%, it's pretty bad. Well, it's awful, actually. <laughs> but, uh, it but it's not going to potentially wipe us out. What could causes a lot of strife is the old CRISPR. We uh, we reviewed the book by Jennifer Doudna, who really pioneered this space, an absolute superstar. But this is where like your old backyard, I can go in there, do a few tweaks of old DNA. I forget the whole technicalities of it. I've forgotten that since the episode. <laughs> but essentially, it doesn't cost a hell of a lot to just do it from your backyard. There's a very interesting Netflix documentaries as well. It just shows how easy to actually just tweak DNA and do like a step change in evolution where it used to take a million years to evolve something. Now you can just do a step change in, in a couple of days. So whilst the sort of natural uh, pandemics are risky and can cause a hell of a lot of trouble, probably won't wipe us out. The manufactured pandemics, the manufactured changes is a, is a potential existential risk. Yeah, all it takes is a few bad eggs out there. There could be a few backyarders who just have a pretty shocking life and they just want to take out the world. There's been a few, like there's been some cults like the Aum Aum Shinkryo cult in Japan, which was active between 1984 and 1995. The whole purpose was to just bring a bit of destruction to all of humanity. Uh, They launched a few lethal attacks, like the VX gas and sarin gas. So if that cult had access to CRISPR, They had a bit of cash and resource behind them. Maybe they could have been a little bit more successful with their their goals. Another bucket of risks is unaligned artificial intelligence. All the way back in 1956, a group of mathematicians and computer scientists came together and they said, hey, let's try to make like a, a machine that is as smart as humans. Then they 
few decades passed, they realized it was actually a lot harder than they thought. So they lowered their sights a bit. They started working on more narrow fields of intelligence, things like doing a bit of like a calculator, things like chess, uh, things that are a, a bit easier to, to be able to achieve. The pendulum is well and truly swinging back to making this goal of artificial intelligence to the level of humans and perhaps even beyond that. Uh, in the last decade, particularly, there's been this new approach of neural networks that have taken off where the whole idea is to model the human brain. And of course, there's like richer data sets ever before that they can actually use to create these neural networks and that have allowed us to, to really speed up the process and increase the likelihood of this whole idea of artificial general intelligence. One argument against the risks is just saying, hey, if we get, make something too extreme, too wild, then we can just turn it off. But the problem is, well, what happens if we make something too good that we can't turn it off anymore? That what if happens if we make something that's as smart as or even smarter than us mm. and all of a sudden we're no longer at the top of the food chain, all of a sudden we've lost our spot as the smarter species? Yeah, it's a real possibility. Imagine if you're like the world's large pin manufacturer and you say, all right, we're going to deploy this new artificial general intelligence to creating pins and then all of a sudden the whole and only goal of that is to create pins. So it's going to probably trick all the humans to start creating pins it's probably <laughs> if we get in the way of its goal and pins and try and turn it off it says all right i'm going to kill the biggest risk of my pin making which is humans <laughs> yeah, and then i'm right. going to uh, turn all our resources into pins and then i'm going to go to mars and turn mars into a whole <laughs> bunch of pins and go into new galaxies and uh, there's aliens in other galaxies going who is this person trying to come over and make pins out of my uh Local back. Oh, maybe I'm just speculating a bit there, but you see the point. There is a, there's a huge risk, and they did a bit of a a study among some of the the smartest computer scientists of our time, and they found that 70% said that AI might pose a risk, uh, and then that half of all the respondents of this group they said that the risk of artificial general intelligence being extremely bad, they they put that chance at above five percent. Now that's that's pretty. That's a pretty high risk. If they're saying the smartest people in the world are saying, "Hey, if we get this right, there's probably a five percent chance that it's going to be very, very bad." Yeah, that's pretty, pretty high. <laughs> that's very high. well, especially when you add them all together. Man, this final one, which is human risk, I think you could argue this is by far going to be the biggest. If you've come across books like The Black Swan, because in many ways, let's say if you go up in a time capsule and speak to someone in 1930, they're just hanging out on the farm uh, with their horse, cracking a whip. And you ask, hey, what's going to be the biggest risk for you and your kids and your grandkids over the next 100 years? I mean, what are they going to come up with? They're not going to come up with the risk we've already spoken about in this episode, are they? Yeah, they're obviously, they think of the natural ones. They might think of climate change. They might think of asteroids, volcanoes. They're not going to be thinking about artificial general intelligence. They're not going to be thinking about pandemics manufactured in a lab. So what we're saying is that all these risks that we're talking about now, over the next 100 years, there's going to be so many risks that we can't even predict right now. So there is this whole category of unforeseen risks. We're inventing new technologies at an ever-increasing rate. We might stumble across something that has the destructive power of the atomic bomb, like akin to that, but totally different. That might even be easy to create from, say, just your classic old every, everyday materials. Okay, so let's quantify some of these risks. We've talked about all these things that could potentially wipe out the human species and uh, it's sounding pretty grim at the moment, but let's put a bit of math and a few numbers behind this. Firstly, let's look at the natural risks we spoke about. The risk of an asteroid or comet coming out to wipe out our entire species is around one in a million this century. 
The super volcanic eruption is around one in 10,000. A stellar, a star explosion wiping us out is around one in a billion. So overall, these total natural risks, the, the risk of something natural coming and wiping us out in the next 100 years is around one in 10,000. That's it. Probably take that. You take that risk. It's, I can sleep at night with that one. Now, the, the big part, I, of course, is anthropogenic risks, us humans doing some wild stuff. So nuclear war says one in 1,000. So it's not just one nuke. I think it's um, you know US bombing Russia and then Russia going to Australia and then we're all just throwing nukes around the planet. And she's got, yeah, I think North Korea is trying to get in that game as well. Yeah, North Korea would have a bit of fun in that one. If there are any North Koreans listening, I don't think so. Uh, climate change... One in a thousand. Again, it's it, we're talking about the wiping us the out, wiping us yeah. out level, not the capping the our potential levels. Natural pandemics, one in ten thousand. Not a big one. Engineered <laughs> pandemics is the puppy here. One in thirty <laughs> in the next century. <laughs> Unaligned artificial intelligence, one in ten this century. That's great. So that's a one in ten chance, and in the next hundred years, AI is going to wipe us out. Yeah, yeah no, mate. I think it's been a low side here. I think it's higher <laughs> than all these. Like one in ten, come on. Unforeseen risk, one in thirty. I think that one's pretty low. Yeah, well, how, well, if it's unforeseen, how could you possibly give that a rating? But overall, when you when you put all these together, the total existential risk that in the next hundred years, the human civilization is going to get wiped out, one in six. Yeah, well, that's, that's his best guess. Obviously, yeah, obviously, that's uh, very fucking high. Oh, it's massive. <laughs> but obviously, it's like uh, it's a hard exercise that I think he's the only bloke who's actually had a crack at something like this. So. He's put in the most work into it, but one in six, it's probably something we should start taking mm. quite seriously. It is literally like playing Russian roulette with six chambers, like I was saying. Play that out over six centuries, the odds are mm. we've only got another 600 years around. <laughs> yeah, that's right. There's a five in six chance that we're going to successfully make it through the next 100 years, which is good. And what we should be doing with that time is trying to reduce that one in six. We should be doing what we can to reduce those existential risks. Because remember... That 600 years, this 100 years, it's nothing. Uh, we've been hanging around for 200,000 years as Homo sapiens. We've spent about 10,000 years as an agricultural civilization. Spent, what, a century or two as a technological situation. But the earth out there, it's hanging around for billions of years in the past. It's got billions of years to come. Going through all of history, typical species, they last somewhere between a million years and 10 million years, but that doesn't mean it's a limit. That doesn't mean we're going to hit the upper ceiling of 10 million years and cark it. There's actually a chance that because we've got billions of years and potentially billions of other worlds and galaxies to go to, we could be living for a hell of a lot longer if we play our cards right. So our galaxy, it's going to remain habitable for a ridiculous amount of time. Some of our nearby stars, uh, they're going to burn vastly longer than our current sun, so each year, there's tens of thousands of new stars born, and these stars are going to last trillions of years. So if we survive on a cosmological scale, the present era is going to be astonishingly close to the very start of our universe, only if we play our cards right and get our house in order. 